Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio, a show featuring people and companies who are making a positive contribution to the world. This show will help you learn how to apply success principles in every area of your life so that you can make the most out of your skills and talents and accomplish more of your goals. To find out more about the show, please visit www.journeytosuccessradio.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, and my purpose in life is to encourage people to live positively through the many and varied challenges that life throws at us. You can find more about the uh, interview and this uh, radio show at journeytosuccessradio.com. My guest today has been someone I've wanted to interview for a while, and I'm excited to finally have him on the show. His name is Ebay Agbanyam, and he's a Harvard-trained leadership coaching strategist, an Amazon best-selling author, motiva- motivational speaker, and organizational psychology consultant. He works with organizations and individuals on how to live a life of impact by applying the five principles of collaboration. In 18 and a half years of working in logistics, eBay understands the importance of effective teamwork and how collaboration contributes to organizational and individual well-being. He has presented his work to various organizations, institutions, and individuals on how to translate thoughts into actions, focusing on positive psychology and desired thinking. He recently shared the stage with the mayor of Tempe, Arizona, Mark Mitchell, and former Congressman Harry Mitchell during Don Carlos Humanitarian Awards event at the Tempe, Tempe Community Council in Tempe, Arizona. He was an invited guest at Arizona State University, W.P. Carey School of Business 2015 Spirit of Enterprise Awards, and he earned his graduate degree in industrial organizational psychology and is pursuing his Ph.D. in the same subject. Welcome to the show today, Ebay. Thank you very much, Tom. It's good to hear your voice. I love the word uh, in your uh, introduction there, positive psychology. It's something I've been studying and for many years, but now there's actually a growth in that study, positive psychology and desired thinking. And that's kind of the aim or the idea behind much of what I speak about is organizing our 60,000 daily thoughts, pre-choosing them, pre-choosing positive ones. And if you don't, as you know, the negative news networks of the world are going to fill you with all kinds of stuff that's not going to help your brain or your actions or your goals in any way, right? That's correct. And to make it, to put it even further, there's 60,000 60, thoughts, Tom. Uh, research shows that 80% of them are just junk, uh, negative. Right. And 95% of our everyday thoughts are repetitive. So if ah. you're already negative, you have 95% of negative thoughts. Repetitive wow. negative running around your brain. So you go figure. <laughs> that's a lot of negative thoughts, and that's the idea behind pre-choosing some good ones. Uh, rather than just trying at the spur of a moment to think of some good thoughts. If you pre-choose them, you always know where to go back to if your mind starts uh, going towards the negative side. So now, a lot of the work you do, uh, especially in your book, The Five Principles of Collaboration, collaboration is so important, whether it's in a family, a business, a church, a charitable organization. And so let's start with some questions about collaboration and what exactly it means to you uh, and to uh, people that are looking to improve collaboration in various aspects of their lives. Thank you very much for that question. Uh, If you may allow me, Tom, to add uh, one more thing there. Yes. Uh, Supreme Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, during her speak at the uh, University of Oklahoma, City of Oklahoma, she was talking to a group of uh, law students, and she made a very profound statement. She said that hearing is not the same as agreeing. 
Mm. And you can hear things and disagree, but you're not entitled to disagree until you understand. So wow. it's very deep because uh, I think the most the problems that we have as humans are, number one, we fail to understand one another. We hear you, but we don't understand. And the moment you don't understand, your brain will start wondering, and then you start making up stuff. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? <laughs> sure it does. So when it comes to collaboration, I think the driving force there is understanding. Right. First. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Understanding first. And I think that's even something Stephen Covey writes about in the seven habits of highly effective people is listen first to understand. That is correct. Even Albert Einstein took it one step further. He said any fool would know. The point is to understand. (laughs) Very powerful. Yeah, so people claim that they know, but the problem is do they really understand? So to right. go back to your your question was what is what is uh, collaboration, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think is we can under, we can explain it from a pedestrian aspect, and or we can also support it with uh, evidence based studies. Yes. You know, from the pedestrian aspect of collaboration, is basically getting along with people. Just getting along, you know, try to understand person where they are coming from. Right. But from a research perspective, the dictionary defines collaboration as working jointly, which means working together. Okay. Now, there are a lot of activities in between, but working together is basically the definition of collaboration. And uh, another, you know, research study talked about a research strategy. If you think about it, though, for those who are working on their PhD, as I am, we need a lot of collaboration with our dissertation uh, chair members, committee members, because without collaboration, you cannot meet the requirements of the university to get your degree. And collaboration is also interdependence which means depending on one another. Mm. A recent study in 2012 defined collaboration as interdependence. And then it's also a recent study in 2014 calls it diversity. Diversity Mm. in the sense that you cannot collaborate. You cannot cannot work with people without collaborating, you know, that from people from different race, religion, uh, sex, and so forth. You can't work together without embracing diversity. Mm. So collaboration is the heartbeat of uh, human interactions or human existence. Right. And you mentioned two words that are kind of... Uh difficult or maybe more difficult for some groups and maybe the cause of lack of collaboration, diversity and interdependence. We are a society that kind of uh, congratulates ourselves on being independent. And so when you have that interdependence needed to collaborate and the diversity, I live in Toronto, one of the most diverse countries in the world, And so it's almost impossible to get any group together for anything that's not a diverse group. But so many groups are put together of non-diverse people, and you are not going to get the most creative, uh, powerful collaborations unless you have diversity and, as you said, interdependence. Can you elaborate on those two? Yes. Even uh, in 2012, when I visited uh, Toronto for the Napoleon Hill uh, stickability conference. I noticed upfront that uh, you know the city is very interdependent. It's very diverse, as mm-hmm. you said. Yeah, very very diverse, and it was very easy for me to uh, uh, you know go uh, drive from point A to point B. 
because people were, I asked questions and people were very kind. Correct me. On where right. So I, my visiting in Toronto, ended up on asking questions or asking for directions. So without the ability to collaborate or to interdepend on one another, I could have wasted my whole time looking for the direction to the conference and I'll end up not getting, not, not getting there. Right. There is a high level of interdependence I experience in Toronto, Canada. And diversity, of course. During the conference, I met a lot of people from all walks of life, from all race. And here I am, you know, talking to you right now. It's as a result of embracing diversity, Tom. Right. So right. it is a clear evidence of uh, how to collaborate with one another. Right. And it's so necessary in groups. You should purposely seek out diversity, uh, which not everybody purposely does. Uh, uh, you know, if you have a group of people who all came from same schooling background, family background, national background, you're not going to expose your collaboration to the most exciting, interesting, fascinating uh, things that are available that might come from people with totally different cultural backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Even, uh, what, what's his name, uh, Ralph uh, uh, Waldo Emerson, Emerson once said that, uh, you know, in my works, every man I meet is my superior mm. in some way. And in that, I learned from him. Right. Wow. I hadn't heard that quote before. I'm going to be uh, asking you to send that to me after. That's a great quote. So uh, let's talk about from your book, The Five Principles of Collaboration. And by the way, let's uh, direct people to your website, uh, fvgrowth.com. So fvgrowth.com. If people need help with any of those letters or the word, uh, they need somebody better than us or different than us. But your website, FV, the letters, FVGrowth, G-R-O-W-T-H dot com. And the five principles of collaboration, I'm staring at it now on Amazon, so it's available there. But let's talk about what are the five principles of collaboration. Good. The five principles of collaboration are trust, respect, empowerment, willingness, and effective communication. Those are the five principles of collaboration as expressed and explained in my book. Nice. Explain them a little bit more in depth, each one of them. Uh, Trust is a very interesting one for me because... uh, during my research, I found out that we have three different types of trust. You know, but it's very common for people to uh, approach others based on overarching type of trust. The, type, the three types of trust are competence, contractual, and goodwill type of trust. So this basically means that when I hear somebody say, I don't trust this person, uh, in my head, I'm screaming, what What are you talking about? What part of trust, what level of trust are you talking about here? Because there are right. three types. Are you talking about contractually? Are you talking about uh, competence or skill? Or are you talking about the basic fundamentals of trust, which is goodwill? Mm. The the challenging understanding there is that when you talk about the goodwill trust is just the basic. Like when you see another human being, somebody that possesses the same future like you, like you know, like you and I, mm-hmm. you have that basic trust. As opposed to when you run into a lion in a jungle of Africa, for example, uh, I think it is natural for you to run away. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so there's a basic trust there when you when you operate on the premise of uh, goodwill trust. You, you you when you meet people, the first thing you do is either to say hi or you smile. You know your body language will uh, 
approve the atmosphere that this guy or this person is a human being like I, until the person opens his mouth and say one or two words. And then now you're trying to assess the person. And then when you move it over to contractual trust, contractual type of trust is it can be verbal or it can be written. For example, we agreed to have a, a, an interview today, Tom, uh, by X amount of time, right? Right. And I counted on you and you counted on me to have this uh, interview. And it's expressly based on contractual trust. I believe that what you say, you will deliver. And what I will say, I will deliver. So that's the basic premise of contractual trust. When you tell somebody that you will do something, you will go ahead and do it. When you write something and say, I'll be there, whether it's email or phone call, you try to follow up. That's contractual trust. Now, when we move it over to uh, competence, or what we also call uh, skill type of trust, we're talking about people that uh, went through training, either by experience or, by, or through academics training. I use, for example, doctors. You know, doctors, we go, I go to my doctor not because I know him personally, but I, I trust him based on the competence level of his training as a medical doctor. Right. So when I go there, I expect him to uh, prescribe or take an inventory of what's going on with me and prescribe to me the right treatment expressly based on competence trust. And it goes on along when you meet a psychologist or you visit a therapist, you trust that therapist to perform his, his or her training. Right, Tom? Right, exactly. And you rely on it. Yes, you rely on him heavily. Or when you meet your professor, in this case, you trust that your professor will teach you, will show you things that you don't know, that you may pass your training. Right. So those are all based on your skill type of training. So, But the, the challenge we have here is that people get stuck in the overarching trust. When I say I don't trust somebody, you have to go back and ask yourself, what level of this trust? Is it, did he normally uh, lie to me when he say he will show up, he don't show up? So he has violated the contractual trust. Or did he usually, when he do show up, did he perform his job or not? In that case, if he don't, means the person has violated the skill type of trust. Or when you just see somebody and then you, for whatever reason, you don't feel comfortable around that person. You have to ask yourself why I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this person. And that's the basic fundamental trust, which is goodwill type of trust. You know, and the rest of them, the rest of the uh, collaboration are types of, uh, you know, the five principles. Uh, respect, of course, is, a, is reciprocal. You know, you, you give respect to receive respect. Right. And first of all, you have to respect yourself first. If you don't respect yourself, there is a tendency that people will disrespect you because right. of how you present right. to them. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, for collaboration to exist, you have to for you have, you have to respect yourself first, and everything starts from you. Because people see you the way you see yourself, basically, Tom. Right. Yeah, and you are the product of what you think every day. Right. And I don't people, know if I'm making sense, Tom. Exactly, and people, uh, yes, they people read language and what people feel about themselves, body language and what they feel about themselves as much or more than the words that someone speaks. And, and also, trust is so important in collaboration. Many times in business or charities or families, you are relying on someone else. You will be judged on the project or collaboration by people outside, and you need to have that trust. Because if you don't have that trust that everyone will fulfill their part of the project or collaboration, 
wow, it's going to be pretty worrisome and stressful and not going to make for the ideal collaboration uh, because you'll never be certain that the other team members are going to do what they say they're going to do. And so that is enormously important and almost should be worked on before the project or the collaboration to uh, build trust within the group. Uh, so very, very important. And so uh, I like that. And the, the three levels of trust are important as well. Uh, someone may not always be able to pinpoint exactly why they don't trust someone, but within those three levels, it's going to be one of those for sure. So now let's uh, uh, give us an example on how the five principles apply in people's lives. How can they take these five principles and improve their own lives? Now, again, like I said, it's, this is something that uh, is a conscious effort. It, it requires conscious effort for you to uh, allow these five principles to play in your life. And I will start my example with uh, in the in the workplace because my background is in I, in, in industrial psychology, right? When right. employees do not trust their management, do not trust management, it will show in their performance. There is a recent study that I just read for one department in a huge organization. The, the question was, do you trust your management to explain things step by step? Only nine, only thirty nine percent of the group said yes. So you're looking about sixty one percent of the group. Six out of ten people in a group do not trust their management. Whoa. And that is just that's very painful. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you you can imagine the chaotic day-to-day -day activities that go that goes on there and the level of stress you know unhealthy stress that goes along right with this kind of experience so first of all as uh, as uh, as an expert it is very critical for managers to understand that when there is low performance or low productivity or when there is low employee morale it is critical for the management to ask this simple question. How are we doing on communicating with, this, uh, with, with our employees? Do they really trust our judgment? Mm. When they ask that kind of question, they can approach it either from through a survey or focus group. And if they can tackle that trust issue, it is possible that job satisfaction, it is possible that employee engagement can even go up because now they know that the management got their back and they can go extra mile to do whatever the management wants them to do. Right. And if we take it to relationship, like, uh, you know, couples, for example, uh, recent study shows that 67 to 80% of second marriage end in divorce. Right. And this is crazy because it has... And it has an influence of how they collaborate. And of course, trust is always in the forefront of these kind of problems. And it goes on and on. Uh, I don't know if we have time to go into all the five principles, examples of all the five principles. But I focus mostly on trust. Right. We can also discuss the impact of communication. Communication has to be effective. It has to be a two-way traffic because right. the, the the essence of communication is to be understood, right, Tom? Right, exactly. The meaning of communication is to be understood for sure. That's uh, I think Tony Robbins has a quote around that, and exactly true. Just saying something doesn't mean that it's understood. Absolutely correct, and uh, I know I know you like. Uh, uh, what's his name, Dr. Victor Frankl? Oh yes. Yeah, I know. I know you have cited him several times. But there's one particular book that he, I mean, a quote that he said, the most human basic motivation is the will to meaning. 
Mm. Which means people have to be willing to change or to collaborate. In other words, it's a willing exercise for you to collaborate. Right. And as long as you stay within that premise of knowing, I want to collaborate, I want a peace in my life, I want a, a, a healthy stress. Healthy stress is those things that you contribute in achieving your goal. Healthy right. stress is when you are pursuing your PhD, you stay up all night studying. At the end of the day, you, 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 at, the, at the end of the, the program, you graduate. Those are healthy stress to go through that. You don't want no toxic stress in your life. Right. So the basic principle there is the willingness to get it done, which is the third uh, principle in the five principles of collaboration, willingness, you know. Right. And I like how you talk about trust of management and stress. I, I'd actually never thought of that, but uh, if you don't trust your management, uh, that's going to create a lot of stress in your life. Job security, promotions, raises. Uh, will they do what they say they're going to do? And if you don't have, if you have lack of trust and uh, stress, you're certainly going to be disengaged at uh, some level, if not a huge level. Yep. I mean, uh, you can. Yeah, you you said it absolutely right. Recent study well, started back in. Uh, 2010, uh, American Psychological Association did a study on that too, and it was below 50% how uh, employees perceive their employers, and trust was right right at the middle of it, reason why it's so low. Right. So you're absolutely right on that. And when you don't trust person, it, it leads you to have this, uh, what psychologists call, untested assumptions. Oh, look at you. I haven't heard of that. Talk about untested assumptions because we sure have them about our bosses. <laughs> untested assumption is you start, make, you, know, you start making up stories in your in your head. <laughs> <laughs> you, start, you start telling yourself stories that doesn't exist anywhere. Right. And before, before you know it, you start acting out of it. Because there's a vacuum between what was said and how it was said. And brain mm. it doesn't do too well about staying in that limbo. You know, our brain will fill out the gap real quick. So if something is not clear, your brain will make up a story to, to cover that space. And that's where untested assumptions, you know, fit in. And you start having misjudgment. You start miscalculating stuff. Right. About your manager. If your manager asks you to... Uh, you know, do something. You suspecting? Okay, what is the what 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 is the uh, hidden uh, motive behind right. this? And when you start, a, you know, your job or your work from that perspective, you are not giving your all. You are just going with the flow. Right, and as so many people are kind of negative, and when they have negative thoughts or assumptions, they like to share them with mm -hmm. other co-workers and pretty soon they're infecting their other co-workers with these assumptions that have never been proven they can't even actually exactly pinpoint them but next thing you know they're sharing them and other people are like oh yeah, yeah right we can't trust him and so they spread their virus uh, based on totally unfounded uh, ideas and thoughts about mm -hmm. their boss mm-hmm and that's a very big problem. Even the this uh, madness is going on that is going on all over U.S. now about violence and you know police brutality. You know, U.S. Department of Justice just recently you know released uh, what do you call it? You know, released a statement about their research. And one of the undermining, underlying problem here is lack of trust between community. And you know, police officers. That's yeah. it. That they just that lack of trust can create a lot of problems in our lives, personal lives, and you know, in a community. So it is something. Collaboration is something very critical that we need to embrace because it's the heartbeat of human existence. Right. Right, and you even mentioned it as part of 
second marriages. Uh, uh, you know, I've read a number of books on marriages and people assuming when they're thinking of getting divorced that, oh, I'm going to find the perfect one after this. And I've learned so much and this and that. Uh, but when you are getting remarried for a second time, there has to be uh, trust issues in both because they're like, well, he said till death do us part or she said till death do us part once before and it didn't work. So always in the back of my mind, I got to know that for my partner, that is an option. Divorce is an option. And so you go in with trust issues in the back of your mind because you know it's already existed for both of you. And uh, as you mentioned, the statistics on second marriage divorces as high or maybe even higher than first marriage divorces. And I think uh, in the back of people's minds, they know that, well, divorce is always an option to my spouse because they've done it before. Yeah, even, like, you know, you're absolutely right, Tom. Even studies suggest also that, uh, you know, trust, I mean, a divorce teaches us how to divorce. Right. <laughs> it doesn't teach you anything, really. It just teaches you how to exit. Right. When the heat is on, you, you know, you find a way to run away. Right. Instead of confronting it or finding a way to negotiate or finding a way to apply these five principles. Because I've noticed that whenever we have a problem in any situation, whether in business or in our family or even in our social setting, when you look at it very closely, one of these five factors has to be missing. The trust, respect, willingness, empowerment, and most importantly, the effective communication. If you actually ask yourself, what is it that I'm not doing, and you go through these five uh, pillars or five strategies, you realize that one of them is lacking. And that's why there's a struggle. And that's why you have a collaboration deficiency. You know. Right. Right. Communication is so important in every aspect of life, but especially between a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Very important. So uh, I like your quote, uh, knowledge rightly applied is power. And mm-hmm. some great uh, words in there, knowledge and rightly applied. Expound on that quote because there's uh, in five words, there's a lot of power in there. Mm. Yeah, we are, I know, I'm sure you've heard about, you know, knowledge is power. Right. Yeah, knowledge is power if rightly applied. Okay, I always use an, an analogy. Uh, you can't use your car key to open your house, your your door, <laughs> your house. Right. Both, both of them are knowledge. Both of them works. You just have to apply it in the right uh, door. Right. Same thing, you can't use your house key to start your car. It will not work. So in this aspect, when I, if I go back to the workplace uh, setting, managers need to know when to apply their knowledge to the workplace or in the workplace. Okay, you can't run your your uh, uh, organization as if you are running your. Uh, I say you you running your family because now you have a, a lot of mixed emotions there. People from different backgrounds. You can't use one key to fit. Say this will fit. This will fit everybody else. So you have to apply knowledge based on fairness. Right. Is, that, is that making sense? Uh, yes, yes, fairness. Yeah, so right. even though you are full of knowledge, but you just can apply a you know an umbrella or a universal or a uniformed uh, knowledge to everybody. You have to understand each and every individual. In the case of manager, you have to right. understand how each other operates. Some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. So when you understand that, when you have the knowledge of the differences there, you can then approach your individuals, I mean your employees, based on their knowledge. That's when knowledge, rightly applied, is powerful. 
I don't know if that makes sense to you. It sure does. Is there ways to build that knowledge of uh, the members of your management team uh, up front so that in the middle of a project you don't start having these issues that you should have looked after right in the beginning? Yeah, I think it, it, it runs right at the middle of uh, what, we dis- what we have been discussing throughout this uh, interview, which is understanding. Right. You have to understand where each and every uh, person is coming from. And how do you do that? By talking it out? Or I know there's also all kinds of personality assessments where you could understand the members of your team. Are they introvert? Are they extrovert? Are they, you know, this or that or whatever? And it would be kind of helpful to have a, that kind of a knowledge or summary or assessment of your team members when you start a project, uh, just so you know really up front what to expect or what, uh, how to respect other members of your team. Yes. Uh, I usually, there are so many psychological uh, tools or instruments you can use. Um, the most critical ones, of course, you need a trained psychologist in order to apply it. Right. And, but the the most common, commonly used one that I seen is to to make sure that you explain the project uh-huh. and get the input of the group, one after the other, person by person. I'm not talking about raise your hand if you understand this. No, <laughs> the way I train is I'll come to you and say, Tom, do you understand this? And you say, yes, can you explain X, Y, and Z? Right. It, would, it, it takes longer time to explain it, but in the end, everybody will be on the same page. Right. And if you want to do, which is not, is highly, is not, uh, I should say, it's not legal to conduct a psychological testing without a, without a trained psychologist. But sometimes the personality testing is good. But you just have to make sure it feels within the policy or the, you know, the is legal right. conduct. That is very critical to point out. So the organic way of doing it is to communicate with that person or with right. the group to make sure everybody is in the same page before right. you leave. And so many managers are uh, simply, do you understand? Yes. Okay. Let's move on. But as you said, just a yes or no is not clearly indicating that they understand. You need them to explain it so that you know that they understand. And the group knows that they understand as well. And uh, you know the interesting thing about it too? You can, when somebody says yes or no, and you don't ask a follow-up question, you have just left the person wondering. Right. And basically, I mean, most of the times they will end up making mistakes. And when you ask them, they will say, well, I did my best. So to avoid wasting time and wasting energy and wasting resources, very simple. Ask the person, do you understand? They will say, of course, most people will say, yes, I do understand. They're embarrassed to say no. To say no to your boss. Right. But the boss has to take it one step further and said, can you explain exactly what you understand? I just want to make sure that we're on the same page here. Right. This simple this simple statement can save the entire team. Right. From and builds trust at the same time. Yes. You know, you know reduce stress significantly. So right. asking questions and, make, and follow-up questions is very critical, you know. And uh, lots of bosses don't do that. All they want is people to A, agree, or B, uh, say they understand. <laughs> yes. And then you wonder why things are not moving the way it's supposed to, because you're not asking the right question. There's, there's power in asking the right question. Not just right. ask random questions, but ask the right question at the moment. Right. And it builds, asking the right questions builds the trust, uh, the empathy, uh, understanding, there's so many things that asking the right questions and getting feedback from your team does for uh, each other and for the project itself. 
And I, I think also you have to allow your employees to be, you know, for them to deliver what you have trained them to be, instead of micromanaging them, right. you know, hovering over them all the time. Give them, empower them to demonstrate the skills that you have trained them to do. And in psychology, there's what is called microaggressive behaviors. You know, microaggressive behaviors could be one of those, you know, questions when, when you ask your employee, for example, do you understand? Your body posture, your, your body movement, your, your mm. eye movement, your facial expression, all those things play a huge part to the response. Right, right. Okay. If you're standing over them like uh, they're sitting in a chair and you're standing over them, towering over them, six inches from them, it can be a more of an intimidating question than if you're seated in a chair like them, sit, sit back, uh, looking casual and comfortable and asking them the same question. Yeah, even the worst one that I see all the time during training is you see a boss asking you, do you understand? And you say, for example, you say, yeah, can you explain? And why in the process of the employee explaining, the boss is writing, typing on the computer, or <laughs> he's doing something else, that's a body language telling the employee basically, this man don't care, doesn't care what I'm telling him. Exactly. And that kind of microaggressive behavior has no place in any setting where there are human beings. So we have to be very uh, conscious about our body movement because it does speak volume. And it does communicate to our employees. And it goes both ways. You know, if you read my book, I set up uh, questions where how employees should uh, interact with their, uh, their boss and how the boss should, you know, interact with employees. Because it's, yeah. like I said, it's a two-way traffic. You cannot expect somebody to do something that you're not willing to do for them. Right, right. I heard the uh, read a quote the other day. To be a true uh, successful business owner, you have to have an MBA, which is a mop and bucket attitude. If you're not willing to grab that mop and bucket and you're asking your employees to do it, uh, you're not going to be a true leader. That's right. That is absolutely, absolutely right. You, know, you have to, at some point demonstrate some level of uh, freedom to whoever that, that, that you are communicating with, either you're on your boss side or the employee side or your spouse side. Right. There has to be a space there where you let people be. You know, what psychologists call, uh, you know, self-efficacy. Right. You have to make a decision to let people be. And people that are in position of power, sometimes without even knowing it, they abuse their power. So right. self-efficacy is the ability for you to realize that, you know, know yourself, and when you know yourself, it will radiate. Right. And you don't have to say much. Your action, your body language will speak volume to the group. Right. So this is one thing that uh, employers or managers need to be uh, aware of, that your body language speak more powerfully than the words that you use on a daily basis. And your words is a demonstration of what you're thinking. Right, right. And so few people realize that. And so, yeah, you, you're right. You could uh, ask a question, but then if you sit back and start typing on your computer while the person is answering, uh, hmm, hmm, all right, does this person really care about me at all? He's not even listening to my reply. Mm-hmm. And that happens uh, not only in businesses, but in families and parents and spouses, uh, many, many instances uh, outside of work. And so very, very important. Now, I'm I'm a little bit sad that we don't have time to talk about one of your other books, Fear, A Healthy Emotion If Well Managed. Uh, I have a very good mentor, friend, and he believes that fear is the one major blockage that stops everyone from finding and pursuing their purpose and success and skills and talents and abilities and he can he says fear is the one thing if you can remove that one thing people will be more powerful in every area of their life 
uh, talk about that book a bit because uh, very few people will look at fear as a healthy emotion, but it truly is a healthy emotion if well managed in your thoughts and your emotions. Yeah, fear, uh, like I mentioned, uh, I, I explained it in in the book, uh, I call it constructive versus destructive type of the constructive type of fear basically is I use the you know this practical example when you go to school and you are afraid of failing the exams it forces you to stay up all night to study because you don't want to fear I mean you don't you don't want to fail so the fear of failing an exam will make you very uncomfortable enough for you to run to the library to study. When you apply in a, in, in, a, in a marriage, there is something about being alone. A study out there by Wilson from Harvard said that uh, uh, they said that the higher number of uh, 67% of men hate staying with your thoughts alone. Supposed wow. to as opposed to women, only 25% of women hate staying with their thoughts alone. So there is something about loneliness that will push somebody to say, I want to find a partner. So the fear of loneliness will force you to find a partner. Okay, either in a, in a, in a, in a form of friend or a partner in a form of marriage or in any setting, but there is that tendency of fear that I might die alone if I don't hurry up and connect with people. Right. So that kind of fear will push you, okay, to develop a healthy uh, relationship. Right. And when you when you talk about, uh, uh, I mean, there are so many ways you, you can think about fear in a, in a positive construct that will move you to do something that you have never done before. Right. Then right. the negative part of it, of course, is what we are used to. We are... We are used to saying, you know, making up stories, like I said, in your head. Uh, Dr. Sarah Lazar from Harvard uh, talked about neuroplasticity. And he said, if you do the same thing over and over and over and over again, there's part of your brain that it will reshape your brain. So you right. start doing over and over again. again. So if you, see, if you view fear from a destructive aspect of it, you will only see it from that angle. But we go to work because we want a paycheck, because we don't want to be homeless, because we don't want to run behind our bills. So the fear of running behind our bills or the fear of being uh, uh, homeless forces us on a daily basis to go to work, to make some money, right. to pay our bills. So that kind of fear is healthy because it keeps you uh, as a as a valuable uh, uh, individual in the society, if that right. makes sense. Um, yeah. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and but these are things that need to be trained and retrained and reapplied and remembered because they don't come naturally to people to think uh, positively of pain. Mm. But so many ways you can take it. Just those examples, you can take pain and turn it into power by, mm. uh, you know, taking actions to avoid the pain. Mm. That's true. Even Debbie Ford said that uh, there is wisdom in every pain. Wow. You're really cha you're changing yeah. the paradigm of thinking here for people on fear. Mm -hmm. There is wisdom in every pain. If you can see through that pain... And uh, I'm, I'm yet, Tom, I'm sure you will agree with me. I'm yet to see any successful person in this universe who has never experienced, who didn't break through the walls of destructive fear and found himself on the other side of constructive fear. In other words, I've never seen a successful man who has never failed. <laughs> in what right, 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 right. Never, never you get at least some area or some part of their life or challenge where they did not fail. And I believe that fear is actually the fuel that, that propels us to do great, great things in life. Fear. Fear of failing 
will get you fired up. While others are sleeping, you're up, scratching your head, trying to find answers to problems. Fear. Right. Fear. Productive mm-hmm. fear. Right. Wow. Okay. And your uh, what was the other book you wrote as well? Oh, the, the power of engagement. Mm, engagement affects, again, another area, just like collaboration, engagement affects our marriages, our families, our churches, our charities, and our businesses. Mm-hmm. Engagement from a position of, uh, uh, as, a, as a construct, like a psychological construct, not a physical engagement. Uh, anything that you see people do on a daily basis, is a result as is a, is as a result of the conversations they have had already in their heads. We are just seeing the demonstration of what is what they are thinking about. So engagement from the aspect of thinking about it and then acting it out. Mm. Does that make sense, Tom? Right. In the end, thoughts are nothing unless you act upon them. Yes. So if you want to know what somebody is thinking. Just watch what they are doing or what they are engaging. That can translate to what they are thinking. So engagement from that aspect is the already conversation that you have in your head, and then you acted on that uh, engaging thoughts. Right, right. And you can't get... Someone can't get someone else engaged. They have to get engaged themselves. It's not something that someone else can get you to do. It's something you must do for yourself to start. That's absolutely right. And I'm sure I'm sure in your life there was a point that you made a decision to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Right. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. But nobody would have known until you acted on it. But the action part of it was as a result of the engagement you had within yourself, the conversation you had, the thoughts that you had. And we are now, I'm now benefiting, we are benefiting from each other because of the demonstration of the engagement and thoughts we had in our minds, and we now played it out. So now we're becoming useful to one another in various ways. Exactly. And even if someone knew what you set your mind to do, they can encourage you, they mm-hmm. can remind you, but they mm-hmm. cannot take the action for you. Otherwise, it's not your own decision. That is absolutely true. Even if they do, uh, I know you are familiar with, uh, you know, Stephen Covey that says, uh, motivation is a fire that burns from within. Mm. Someone's tried to light it up. It will only burn for a period of time. Right. So it has to come from within for it to take a long uh, effect. So you are you are absolutely right. Engagement is not something that uh, comes from outside. It's something that comes from within. Right. And yet so many people point outward. Well, my boss is not engaging me or my spouse is not engaging me in this or that. Uh, No, (laughs) you start with the engagement and your example will get others that your boss, your spouse, whoever, to engage back. Mm -hmm. But if you're waiting for someone to engage with you before you get engaged with them, uh, not likely to happen very often. That that is absolutely right, Tom. And that's where self-efficacy comes in. What... uh... Uh, social psychologists uh, from your country, from Canada, uh, uh, Albert, ba- you know, Bandura. That, mm-hmm. That's what he called uh, self-efficacy. It has mm-hmm. to come from within. Right. You know. And once it comes from within, then surprise, surprise, it comes from without as well. <laughs> that's right. And nobody can take it away from you without your permission. Right, exactly, exactly. So the way to start is start with yourself. Don't wait for other people to get you engaged in whatever you're engaged in. Start yourself and then you'll see others uh, do the same in return in kind for what you are demonstrating yourselves. And so self-efficacy, not an easy word to say, but certainly it should be a goal of everyone's. 
to be self, uh, <laughs> however you say it. But yeah, it should be a goal of everyone to take action themselves first. Don't wait for others to try and develop in you what you would like to have developed. Do it yourself, and then others will contribute and encourage and and do in kind to what you're already doing. I remember uh, Jim, Jim Stovall said that you don't have to stay, stay, sit in your house and wait for the whole traffic lights to be green right. before you start leaving. Right. You never leave your house. <laughs> you you never leave, so you might as well start moving. And then right. the lights will start turning green as you proceed. Right. I'm a big fan of Jim Stovall, and I think you are as well. Mm-hmm. He's an awesome man. Awesome, man. I remember asking him a question he'd never been answered. I asked him, uh, are your goals for things and, you know, consumer products different as a blind person than as a seeing person? And he answered, well, he says, I have a penthouse condo with floor-to-ceiling windows that overlooks whatever city he lives in. And he says, do you think I bought that for myself? Because he is blind, as we know. And he said, no, I bought it so that when people come over to my condo, they'll say, wow, Jim, you have an amazing view from the windows here. And so it's like, right, okay. So he buys things for the same reason that other people do, kind of the feedback from friends and family and and, uh, people that are close to him. (laughs) He thought it was an interesting question because I wondered, like, what does a new iPhone or a new smartphone mean to someone who can't really see it? But, mm-hmm. you know, other people see it. And so that's kind of a little bit of the back of the mind of people who purchase some things is that other people will see it as well. But uh, great books, Collaboration, Engagement, and Fear. Uh, man, if people can master those three alone, uh, Napoleon Hill success principles will fall easily into place if you have engagement, collaboration, and a lack of fear. Mm. That is so let's, let's remind people again your website, fvgrowth.com. F, the letter F, V, letter V, and G-R-O-W-T-H.com. Uh, all your books on there, but also look on Amazon. Uh, I was on your Amazon page today reading through those book descriptions and... Uh, um, very powerful books uh, that can touch everybody in every area of their life. It's not like you wrote these books just for a corporate market. It can be for a marriage. It can be for a family. It can be for a community. It can be for a church. It can be for a charity as well as a business. And so important uh, and necessary information for everyone in every walk of life. That is absolutely correct, and I forgot to. I'm, I don't know if you are, if you are aware of it, Tom. That uh, uh, the five principles of collaboration made Amazon bestseller last week, also. You know, second nice. in a row. Mm. Wow, two-time Amazon bestselling. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm very grateful. Right, and uh, there's a reason behind it: is that you have a topic that is uh, crucial to business and to life, and you know, people respond to. To uh, that collaboration uh, in every aspect of their life, and it's important in every aspect. So no wonder it became Amazon best-selling. Congratulations! Thank you very much. I'm grateful. Thank you so much uh, for your time today. I really uh, appreciate it. It's been fun finally getting to interview you, and uh, some uh, amazing books you've written on very key topics of interest to me and of interest to everyone. And uh, I know they're all going to do very well. And I uh, just thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And I must congratulate you for your recent book as well. Thank you so much. Feels pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> when you have an Amazon bestseller. <laughs> I didn't think it would affect me so much. But uh, uh, I, I think I walk a little bit taller now. Thanks so much, uh, eBay. I appreciate it. Uh, Amazing time spending with you, and I'm looking forward to letting all my social media contacts know about your three amazing books and the work you're doing. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. Have an amazing day. You too, now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Journey to Success Radio. 
If you or anyone you know would like to be interviewed for the show, email tom at tomtootall.com for details.